Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my home studios in South Bend, Indiana. And sitting across from me in his home studios in beautiful Portland, Oregon, is my favorite deacon, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, evangelist, raconteur, heck of a nice guy, Deacon Harold. How are you, Deacon? I'm doing well, Ken. I'm doing great. And uh, why I'm doing great today, particularly, is because of the guests that we have on our show today, the one and only Dr. Scott Hahn. And uh, last week, we had a wonderful discussion about the first part of his uh, great new book, along with Brandon McGinty, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And so we welcome back again with us, Dr. Scott Hahn. It's great to be back with you, Deacon Harold, and with Ken. Thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, in talking about the book, you have mentioned the book is kind of broken into three sections. You talked about the first part is about religion. The second part is about secularism. And the third part is about religion and the lives of real people, which you, which you call the, the kind of the highlight of the book. So um, just one little piece about that, the second part. One thing I, I'd love you to uh, talk about is this idea of the relationship between truth and freedom. You know, so many of our young people will say things, uh, you know, they, they've taken truth and said, well, truth is not something objective. There are not things that are true in and of themselves. Truths can be like Play-Doh. It can be changed, it can be manipulated, twisted, and distorted into whatever I want it to be. And and now we have cultural affirmations for that. We say things like, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. That may be your truth, but that's not my truth. And in relating to some of the themes of your book, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And that has become a religion of so many of our young people today. So can you just uh, touch on that, please? Yeah, on the one side, we can't really do justice to the historical development of this approach to truth that goes back to, you know, the Via Moderna of Occam and uh, Marsilius and Machiavelli. But the idea of making truth claims, especially in the realm of religion and morality, was problematized centuries ago, farther back than most people realize. By the time you get to the 19th century, figures like Marx and Nietzsche, you know, they they crystallize this so that Nietzsche's point is that anyone who is making a truth claim is really exercising their will to power. And, And that is now practically the water everybody's drinking. And yet, on the other hand, when it comes to science, when it comes to material reality, when it comes to the political emphasis on social justice, most of the people who subscribe to the secularist narrative that we are progressives would not say those truths are relative. Those truths are scientific and our politics will be based upon that. You know, and I think the truth is obviously in the middle, you know, in a sense, because the fact is reality is reality. And even if we're told a thousand times, well, that's your reality, not my reality. I'm reminded of William Glasser, who I, we mentioned in the book. Because back in the 60s, Glasser developed this thing called reality therapy. It was similar to what Viktor Frankl developed in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
having survived a concentration camp, he realized that we need hope, but we need a transcendent source for hope. And so Frankel shows how man's search for meaning is what gives us hope and meaning to live. Glasser's reality therapy showed that when you're thinking in a fantastical way, you're living in a fantasy world, you can call it reality, you can call it your own reality, but the fact is you've got pieces to pick up and lots of them in no time at all. And so walking people back through their life experience, helping them to adjust to the reality was really the only therapy that would work with people, even if you're not directly targeting relativism. And I, I think ultimately people realize that there is this thing called reality. It's certainly what we as Catholics have on our side, because at the end of the day, whatever cultural, social weather front happens to be passing through and lingering for a lot longer than we might like, eventually the sun comes out. And people are going to recognize that when we speak of love, when we speak of truth, when we speak of justice, we're not just talking about a flavor of the month. We're talking about things that abide. There is a reality that pertains to what it means to be human. Call it human nature, whatever else there is, it's who we are. And I think that is really the path to freedom. We always want to do freedom. We always want our rights. But and again, another part of the book we focus on how rights don't just come out of nowhere. They're based upon duties. I have a right as a parent to decide, for example, the education of my kids. Why? Because I've got a duty, not just for the procreation, but for the education of my offspring. And so the inseparable link between the duties that we have, and even some of the ones that we haven't chosen, as McIntyre and others speak of these duties that we are born into. Again, what is this called? It's called reality. But the painful parts that pertain to morality and religion are, in a certain sense, the most important and therefore the last to be discovered or the least likely to be affirmed. But I think it's the only path forward. Wow. So the entire middle section of your book really is exploring the idea how, since we require some form of religion, it's kind of a natural thing that we all lean towards. Unfortunately, secular society is its own religion and right. it's proposing, but it has been puttering along on the structure that Western society has inherited from the church. And then in chapter 11, you use this wonderful image of dissipation and the idea that this is something that is frittered away and that we are experiencing this dissipation in our society. Certainly we can you know, look at the news and see all of the sorts of different challenges but that there is a way that we can begin to build up again. And that's what all of the last part of your book is about, is how do we build up and where do we start? Like in chapter 11, I have this wonderful quote that I highlighted. So too can our civilization be made whole again by turning to Christ. He can restore our inheritance of grace, not necessarily immediately, but with the hard work of holiness over decades and generations. Right. So this is kind of where, where you go from here, right? I mean... Yes, absolutely, positively, Ken. You know, I think of the uh, the foundations for the final section of the book because for me personally, I was trained in the 70s. And so I remember as a philosophy major at Grove City, identified by all my classmates as the evangelical Thomist, which for them was so oxymoronic, it was a half a, half a joke. But I remember reading Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions and recognizing then and even more now that we are in a time of a paradigm shift. I'm not a big fan of Kuhnian 
relativism, but at the same time, he really put his finger on how paradigms shift when you have a pile of anomalies mounting up and then finally a theory that exercises greater explanatory power, you know, or at least it's, it seems more to fit the, uh, the seasons. I was also thinking of another book that I was reading, rereading at the time, Michael Polanyi, the Gifford lectures from the fifties, personal knowledge, that there is this tacit dimension to human knowledge, a fiduciary element. You have to exercise faith, even in scientific communities as to the traditions, you can't reinvent every theory, every generation. Uh, and so when you, and, and this is so McIntyre and too, um, but you know, the thing that, you know, this is why I'm convinced that McIntyre leaves Marxism and then eventually becomes a Catholic. And it isn't just your typical conversion story. To me, he embodies the paradigm change that we're all hoping for, that we're all working for, that we're all praying for, I suspect, because by asking the right questions and opening yourself up to, to right answers, even if they're painful, I, th I do think that this is the path forward. But let's not pretend that we don't have the answers in the back of the book, because whatever path it is that leads you or me to Rome, you know, we end up with a sacred deposit of faith that not only shows us the supernatural truths that are revealed by God, along with the power of the Holy Spirit to embrace that by faith, we're also seeing how grace heals nature and how revelation confirms reason. And suddenly the faith enables us not just to be supernatural children of God, but just better philosophers, social thinkers, theologians, and citizens. And in the process, better husbands, better fathers, better fathers-in-law, and now we've got 20 grandkids, grandfather too, you know. But I, I do believe that we recognize as, as Americans that we want to be good citizens, whatever that means, you know, let the debates go on. But as Catholics, we want to be saints too. And I have a section in the book, in some ways, I suppose it's my favorite. You know, on page 179, I say, um, it doesn't make sense to want sanctity or holiness for yourself only, but not for your spouse, or for your spouse, but not for your children, or for your children, but not the neighbors, or for your neighborhood, but not for your city, or for your city, but not for your nation, for your nation, but not for the world. What we have been given as followers of Christ is unambiguous. It's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me at the end of time, and that's where we can really sigh relief. No, back before his ascension, the last thing he tells them is that right now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay, so what? Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples of all nations, not just make disciples in all nations, but make disciples of all nations. The Greek word for nation there is ethne, sometimes translated Gentile, but it carries that meaning of ethnicity. And so if Israel is God's firstborn son, then what God the Father wants for these disciples is to take the second, third, and fourthborn sons to take all of the nations behind Israel and give them their turn to hear the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified and resurrected and enthroned as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and not just the high priest in heaven. These 
truths have political implications. Now, it isn't a Pelagian program, you know, where we just kind of build or, you know, let us build the city of God. Uh, I won't go there. <laughs> uh, instead, what it, what it means is, you know, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the foundation for the Great Commission is the sacramental mystery of this divine economy of salvation history. We're not spectators in the stands looking down on the field of salvation history or looking back on it as though it ended with the death of the last apostle. We're standing in the middle of the stream of salvation history. Okay, granted, we've got to put on the spectacles of faith, but what we're seeing is not something that is rose-colored because that's the color of our spectacles. We're seeing reality. It's more like walking into a theater and you don't realize there's a 3D movie and you're wondering why they didn't, you know, clean up the blurred images. You put on the glasses and then you see what the producer was really doing. And it seems to me that this represents the, the turning point in the book where you wake up and realize, as, as Deacon Harrow was saying, truth is the source of freedom because truth is what we understand reality to be. Okay, if that's the case and Jesus Christ is truly the Lord of history, then that doesn't just affect what we do on Sunday morning. That affects what we do at every other day of the week and in every other sphere of life as well. And so by the time Jesus is wrapping up with the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, not just teaching them to observe whatever overlapping common ground there is between a secular society and the Catholic Church, so that politically correct moral programs will form a social justice agenda so that Catholics and you know, the leaders of our progressive society can agree on some things. No, teach them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. I mean, you look at that and you realize this is a program for, I mean, it's unrealistic. Come on, Scott, are you serious? Are you and Brandon thinking? Well, it's not about whether we're successful in my lifetime or in my kids or my grandkids, it's really a matter of being faithful, you know, and we recognize, okay, there's a sphere of concern that is the whole world. I'm concerned about so many things that I can't do much about. And then the draw from Stephen coming, there's the, there's the sphere of influence, what I can actually do to influence others. And this is why what Rodney Stark describes in the rise of Christianity is the impossible task of Galilean fishermen and tax collectors to make disciples of all nations. Come on, wake up, take a close look. It's called the Roman Empire. What are the chances? You know, zilch. And yet against all odds, you know, last week, Ken, you mentioned Christendom, you know, and what emerges from the, uh, the ashes of a collapsing self-destructive Roman Empire as Augustine chronicles in the city of God it's not a utopian culture by any means, but it is Christendom. It's what John Paul would rightly describe as a civilization of love. It has flaws to be short. It fails all the time. It has fault lines, you know, that take centuries to really appear before the thing is dismantled. Uh, Caesaropapism, all kinds of other things that we can't get into. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, if we're not going to fulfill our mandate to go out and sanctify the temporal order. I mean, that's the language of Vatican II. Not sanitize it, not naturalize it, but sanctify the temporal order. Well, okay, if we're not going to do that, then what's going to happen is the world is going to come into the church and desecrate her. 
And so it's one or the other, and we've already seen the other. So let's go back to the one and recognize, you know, we've got our marching orders. This is not optional. It's not up to us. It's the Holy Spirit working through baptism and the other sacraments. You know, we have to teach whatsoever he has commanded us, and we have to do it without compromise. And so really, at the end of the day, I would say it's up to Christ, and that's how it ends. The Great Commission climaxes with, lo, I am with you always, to the close of the age. Well, then we figured out how did a culture of death like the pagan Roman Empire suddenly, or not suddenly, but gradually morph into Christendom? It's Christ's presence, most especially in the Eucharist and in 101 other mysterious ways. This isn't pious rhetoric. This is not like wishful thinking. This is the hard, cold series of facts that flow from, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I'm a father but I'm not anything but almighty. He is, all of his power is fatherly. And so in spite of my weaknesses and failures as a dad, he is fathering a family much vaster than the Hans. And to me, it's almost too good to be true, except it is the truth. It's the gospel truth. And so as Catholics, I think we have so many more advantages than just virtuous conservative American citizens or good devout evangelical Protestants. It's time to forge every alliance conceivable across the whole breadth, and not just with conservatives, but liberals, post-liberals. I mean, Patrick Deneen, I think, has done a great job of showing how in rethinking these matters, we're going to back ourselves into partnerships that we would not have predicted 10 years ago. And so, I mean, there has never been a time that is more scary or more exciting than this present moment. <laughs> no, I would absolutely agree. And, you know, I can imagine, because one of the things that you've written on that you're expert on is the idea of covenant and how that covenant unfolds in a familial relationship, in a family kind of way. Um, uh, and what I think is what you're talking about is, is the, the developing of a new Christendom, if you will, you know, where you have the family as the foundation, if you build strong families, not just a group of individual families in some conglomerate, but working together, those families build a strong church. If we have right. a strong church, then we can have a strong culture. And then we'll see, you know, those changes that you so eloquently that, talked about. That is exactly. I mean, Deacon Harold, I mean, you've obviously put your finger right on the pulse, you know, that it's the parish, but it's also the family. The domestic church, you know, I'm thinking at, I'm thinking back to March when COVID struck and we've got two sons in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the diocese of Steubenville and they had to come home. And when they got it, we always did a family rosary for many years, but I tasked my oldest son who is now a transitional deacon. I said, Jeremiah, you're going to lead us in the breviary. We've never prayed the, the liturgy of the hours before. And so over the course of months, we discovered a new depth and a new simplicity of what it means to be a kind of domestic monastery. I mean, we had tensions and everything else that all families have. I mean, you know, I'm a dysfunctional dad at my in my moments and all of that. But I mean, I do believe that uh, the family in this moment of history is also in the process of self-rediscovery. And uh, nothing I've done has been more fulfilling in my life as being a father. On the other hand, nothing, nothing has has frustrated me more or made me feel like a failure more than fathering these six kids at every stage of life, you know? And yet when God, the father makes up for what I lack and decides to use me in spite of myself, the father of these kids and the grandfather are 20, you know, you got to stand back and say, you know what? A family metaphysic, 
uh, family hermeneutic. It makes this truth available, not just to those with PhDs and tenure, but I mean, to the people who just push a broom, who never went to college, you know, in every continent, uh, in every town, but in every tribe. It's like, to me, it's what makes this so accessible, but it's what also creates the conditions of possibility for God the Father to press his own reset and suddenly set into motion things that we didn't have enough faith to pray for. I have a question about where do we go from here, though, right? right? In chapter 14, for example, true religion brings unity to society. You have this wonderful quote from Pope Benedict uh, the Sixteenth in his speech to the French. One of my favorites, yes. It's an amazing quotation. I mean, you know, basically kind of, you know, saying when monks went to become monks, they didn't do it to rebuild society. They did it because they themselves were seeking holiness. I mean, right. That... When monks established monasteries, they weren't seeking Christian civilization. That was the unintended byproduct. You yeah. seek first the kingdom, these things will be added. But the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. So if we're using the kingdom of heaven to get the things on earth that we want for ourselves and our society, we're not going to get the kingdom or the other things that would, would be added. To me, you know, I have a section on page 181 where I describe what happened on August 23rd, 1973, when these, uh, these uh, two bank thieves were you know, breaking into a vault. They took four hostages. They had them for several days until finally they were rescued. And yet in Stockholm, these, these hostages stood there and defended their captors for the next several months in court, as well as in the media. And so we have the Stockholm syndrome. And I just thought that is such an appropriate diagnosis for Catholics in the West. In this postmodern turn, we've got to recognize that we're sort of defending our captors. We've bought into their program. We've got to wake up and say, you know what? We were hostages. There were serious injustices done. We've got to rethink a whole lot more than we thought we'd have to rethink. And in the process, we don't have to become monks, but just in our own marriages, in our workplaces, in our friendships especially, just living the truth of the gospel in small, subtle, but supernatural ways. Again, I think we're going to set in motion forces that are going to produce islands, oases, if you will, of this kind of grace-filled Catholic subculture that will become something more than subculture someday, Lord willing. Yeah, and I think one of the things to take away from all of this is that we don't have to wait for the bishops to lead us in this effort. You know, I, I think yeah. for a long time, we always look to the bishops as kind of, okay, let's, let's see what he says, and then we'll follow his lead. But I think because of the sexual abuse scandals and some of the financial scandals and some other things, that I think in the eyes of the culture, the bishops have lost credibility. And so that which makes this even more important of building up the family, because you don't need bishops to build up the family. There are there are teachers and, and we and we love them, but at the same time, we cannot just sit back and wait for them. I think we have to kind of take the lead on this one, especially working within our sphere of influence in our workplace, Amen. in Speaking the family, in the way we impact the culture and society. And that's why I love this book, because especially this last section of the book helps us to do just that. I think it it reforms our minds and shapes us in such a way that I remember when I was reading the last part of this book, I said, my first thought was go to scripture. You know, it was, you know, to, to mine more deeply the words of our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the gospels. And I said, okay, how can I take this 
gospel imperative, right? And, and that becomes the hermeneutic. That becomes the interpretive key for how we move forward in culture society because all of us are frustrated with all the agendas that are being pushed. And it feels like we want to give up. But this, but this book, uh, again, it is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion, uh, authored by yourself from Brandon McGinley, I think is a, a tremendous source of hope for all of us. That's a tremendous insight that you just made. I don't want to let it go by. We don't have to wait for the clergy or the, you know, the episcopate and that kind of thing. I call this the Estrava option. You know, in Vatican II, Apostolicum Actualisitatum, Catholic action was held up as a paradigm. You wait for the cardinals and the archbishops and the bishops to give you your orders. Wait, Christ has given us our orders. We're baptized. We're confirmed. And if we're married, we're out there in the middle of the world, again, as apostles, and we're responsible for being apostolic in sanctifying the temporal order as much as we can, as you said, you know, in our own sphere of influence. And so we've got to get with the, pro, you know, the Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is. He's the vicar of Christ, and we're grateful for that. We pray for him. We love him. But it isn't as though we just simply get our marching orders from him. No, the Great Commission has given each and every one of us our job descriptions. Well, doctor, this is an amazing book. And I think, uh, Deacon Harold has hit it. I mean, you know, the challenge you issue is that we each actually work on holiness and do so by building up the virtues. I mean, you you talk about to the extent that civilization depends on holiness, therefore it depends on the church, but that church is not the institution. That church is actually us. That's right. Andrew Jones, a good friend of mine, wrote a book called Before Church and State under King Louis. It wasn't church and state. He never spoke that way. It was clergy and laity in a sacramental organism, partnership, sanctifying the temporal order. If God could do it back then, he can do it again. Amen. Well, how can folks get a copy of your book? Well, the obvious channel, the usual suspects, Amazon and so forth. But our website is stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. And our publishing arm is Emmaus Road. Well, Dr. Scott Hahn, thank you so much for joining us these last two weeks and talking about your wonderful book, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, co-authored with Brandon McGinley. It's been a joy to have you with us. It has been my joy. Ken, thank you. Deacon Harold, thank you so much. I look forward to doing this again sometime. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you. And so, Ken, how can people stay in touch with us? Pretty easy. Just go to Facebook where we will have a link to the St. Paul Biblical Society and to this book and to last week's chat as well. So just type in Living Stones Media into your Facebook search bar. And you can also download all the previous episodes of the show at materdeiradio.com. But until we gather again next week, Deacon, and pick up our conversation about Evangelium Vitae, might we have a blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M A T E R D E I radio.com.